This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today, after a five-year absence, we are talking to Peter Lavender once again, and I would very much like to welcome Peter back to Dreamland after so long. Peter, it's good to see you again, and good to see your face, and you're looking, I must say, very well. Well, it's it's good to be sane, good to be seen, and same at you, Whitley. You look you look remarkably well. I know, isn't it strange? <laughs> the older we get, the better we get. Yeah, you and me and Linda Howe are all fairly old and yet uh, in very good shape. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things today, folks. Uh, I think that um, Peter needs no introduction, but I will introduce him anyway. Uh, he is. Uh, has worked on uh, a number of books with Tom DeLong, or, or perhaps it's the other way around. Tom has worked on a number of books with him, but in any case, uh, it, it, these books are uh, an exploration of what they have come to believe are some of the deepest secrets in the world. And they have had a, a contact with quite a few uh, individuals who are in a position to know a little more than most of us. But Peter is in a remarkable position because he's really one of the most unusual, has had one of the most unusual lives I've ever heard of. And Peter, I thought it might be interesting to give people a little background because when I see you on the internet, I see you on shows or hear you, they usually jump right into the heart of the matter. But there's an extraordinary person here. And we've talked to you many times. And you and I had a correspondence that lasted years and uh, nearly 20 years, actually, looking back on it. It's quite extraordinary. But um, can you go back to the early days of Peter Lavenda when you were working for the Presbyterian Church and before and uh you seem to you seem to have a very unusual life trajectory let me let me put it that way it it was a bit bizarre that's true um i wasn't actually a member of i wasn't a presbyterian but i worked at the presbyterian church in brooklyn heights uh in the late 60s um 69 to 70 roughly uh for about a year or a little bit more than a year uh, and it was run by a guy called William Glenesque. And he was, uh, how shall I put it? He was an interesting guy. Uh, he was very much part of the counterculture. It was the anti-war movement, but it was also countercultural and all the rest of it. So uh, he was a, an interesting person uh, to work with. Uh, he was surrounded by artistic people. We had We invited people to give sermons. Uh, at the church on Sunday, who were cultural figures. So Milos Forman, the famous director, would show up one Sunday. Um, Oscar Brand would show up on another, another uh, the famous uh, folk singer. We would have different people like that um, who would, who would, you know, appear, and they would have a guest um, uh, sermon, I suppose you'd call it. But at the same time, we were also a clearinghouse for a lot of anti-war stuff. So we had uh, the weathermen would occasionally use our basement in the middle of the night for a meeting or the Black Panthers would once in a while, not very often, but they did show up. We were also a clearinghouse for people who were looking to uh, evade the draft. 
we would uh, assist people in uh, finding a way to get into into Canada. For instance, there was a famous cafe up there in Montreal called the Yellow Door, and they would assist Americans who were, um, you know, draft resistors and that sort of thing. Uh, so we got contacted for all sorts of things, um, and we had to be very careful, you know, not to not to break any laws, but at the same time, we did what we could. And uh, at one point, I was on the phone with the headquarters of the Presbyterian Church, which is in Manhattan. I was in Brooklyn uh, over some minor thing, I suppose. And when I was talking to them, um, I heard an explosion uh, from the other side and a very loud noise. And the people on the other end of the phone says, there's been an explosion. There's a bomb or something. We have to get off. And that turned out to be the famous uh, brownstone that blew up uh, with the weathermen accidentally blowing themselves up and a bunch of them escaped. And that was right across the street from the Presbyterian headquarters. <laughs> so, you know, weird things like that were always happening. But I had gotten into that church because of I had been involved with another church previously, uh, which is a whole long story. And um, I was involved with a church that since it's very much in the news these days is an Orthodox church. Uh, so we were involved with the Russian Orthodox and the Ukrainian Orthodox uh, denominations. And it was very hairy because the church that I was involved with actually turned out to be a front for some kind of domestic intelligence operation. Uh, it was run by a guy called Profeta, who was a famous, at that time, Ukrainian uh, priest who had created his own church and was a notorious anti-communist and um, had been slotted to be the White House chaplain had Dewey won the election against Truman. Um, he showed me the paperwork for that, the invitation letter and all the rest of it. He was packing his bags to go to Washington, uh, and then he found out that Truman actually had won. So this church was the church that was the cover for people like David Ferry and Jack Martin, uh, these famous uh, characters that Jim Garrison was investigating um, for the Kennedy assassination. I, I consider it so remarkable that you you would be happen to be there in that in the middle of that because can you tell us a little bit about well let's just talk about a trajectory from the Maury Island UFO incident and the Kenneth Arnold affairs to sure. to the JFK assassination because there is a trajectory there. And it's just extraordinary. And you know a yeah. great deal about it. Yeah. I, when I was invited to do this secret space program conference in Amsterdam more than 10 years ago, I couldn't figure out why they invited me. Um, I mean, I had written Sinister Forces. That was already out. And there is a chapter or, or two on, on UFOlogy and, and that sort of thing. But I was interested in, in the UFO phenomenon from the point of view of American history. And, you know, the, the relationship, the bizarre relationship that this phenomenon had uh, to major events in, in, in American history, at least in the 20th century. And one of these was, you know, the Maury Island affair, which is famous to UFO researchers, considered largely to be, have been a hoax, but maybe not. Um, two individuals, Fred Crisman and Harold Dahl, um, were up in uh, Puget Sound, up on the west, the northeast, uh, excuse me, the northwest the West Coast, uh, near Seattle. And um, evidently, according to them, there was this UFO that was in some kind of distress and rained down some slag of some kind, some hot metal 
uh, pieces onto a boat that Harold Dahl was on in the in Puget Sound, and it killed his dog, evidently, uh, and wounded uh, a young boy and all kinds of other stuff. Harold Dahl calls his boss, who happens to be Fred Crisman. Now, Fred Crisman was already kind of a shady character to begin with. There are rumors that he was in the OSS during the war, which was the forerunner of CIA. I haven't found any confirmation of that, but there's a lot of chatter around that uh, particular uh, claim. And at any rate, he was uh, he saw an opportunity here with the slag and all the rest of it. Kenneth Arnold had just done his was just about to do or had just done his his um, famous expose of having seen flying saucers also in the Pacific Northwest and um, somehow. Uh, somehow um, they all got together at a hotel in Seattle to discuss this UFO situation. So you have Kenneth Arnold, you have Fred Crisman, Harold Dahl, and eventually the Air Force is invited to take a look at the materials that fell from the UFO. There's a whole weird story about this, about there not being any hotel rooms, and then suddenly there is a hotel room, and it's in their name, even though they weren't even planning to be there until that night, all kinds of wild stuff. There was a journalist who was trying to cover this meeting. He dies mysteriously shortly after. So there's all sorts of you know high strangeness around this event. And to top it all off, uh, the, the two Air Force intelligence officers make off with the box with all the, the metal pieces in it, take it aboard their aircraft, and the aircraft explodes in midair, and the, the officers die, and we don't know what happened to the UFO materials. And that made the headlines. I mean, that was a, a major news story at the time. So that's Harold Dahl and Fred Crisman. Harold Dahl later tells people, no, it was all a hoax. It never really happened. Uh, there was no UFO, et cetera, et cetera. And then a little while later, he changes his story again and says, I said it was a hoax because I got tired of people bothering me about this. But it really wasn't a hoax. It really did happen. So we have these conflicting stories from Harold Dahl. Well, that should have been the end of it in 1947. Um, but then in 1963, there's the Kennedy assassination. Jim Garrison in New Orleans realizes that Oswald had lived in New Orleans in his town just a, prior to the assassination, shortly before, a few months earlier. He had been involved with somebody called Guy Bannister at uh, Guy Bannister's uh, detective agency um, in, in New Orleans. Well, this leads us into another whole area. Guy Bannister used to be in the FBI. In fact, he was a respected FBI agent. And he had been tasked in 1947 with keeping track of all the UFO activity in the Pacific Northwest and reporting it by telegram to his boss, J. Edgar Hoover. And he had to do this um, on a regular basis. He was always running around interviewing people who had claimed they saw a UFO. And the subject matter of his telegrams was always X. It was referred to as subject matter dash X or SM subject matter, SM dash X. So that was the actual X-Files. This was the beginning of the X-Files. And it was all about UFO experiences and UFO sightings. So there you have Guy Bannister in New Orleans running this detective agency, very anti-communist, um, but also very anti-Kennedy, hated and despised Jack Kennedy. Uh, people who worked out of his office included David Ferry and Jack Martin and another lawyer we can get into later called Thomas Jude Baumler. They all worked out of that particular office. Oswald was known to have the address of the Guy Bannister's office on his 
uh, handouts for the free uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So there was a connection there. Garrison starts following this connection. He start he knew about Jim Garrison. I mean, he knew about uh, Guy Bannister. He knew you know about Bannister's background. Bannister had already died by '64, but um, you had David Ferry. You had Jack Martin. They were still around. They're being questioned by Jim Garrison, and eventually, then he subpoenas Fred Crisman to appear. He subpoenaed Crisman is still on the West Coast. He's subpoenaed to show up uh, and to testify in front of Garrison's people in New Orleans on what he might have known about the Kennedy assassination, because there was some evidence that Crisman was involved in the same extreme right paramilitary groups that Guy Bannister was involved with, that David Ferry was involved with, uh, trying to take uh, Cuba back from Castro. So again, Crisman shows up. First, he's there in 47 with the seminal UFO event of the 20th century, which was the word, the, 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 the events that gave us the term flying saucer, which is Kenneth Arnold's sighting. And then suddenly he shows up again, you know, uh, 20 years later. And now he's in New Orleans as a possible witness to the Kennedy assassination. And Guy Bannister, also in New Orleans, also chasing UFOs in 47, is now in New Orleans. And then he's implicated in, in the assassination. And then you had David Ferry and Jack Martin, who worked as kind of gophers for Guy Bannister to some extent. And... There I am on the East Coast in the Bronx. I belong to the same church that David Ferry and, and Jack Martin belong to, right? And just the year before I got involved with that church, the head of the church, Profeta, the archbishop that I mentioned, is sending letters to Guy to um, Jim Garrison saying, when you're finished with Jack Martin, can you send him back to us, right? So the evidence is there. It's, it's in the declassified documents. I have copies of all of that. And so I'm there in the midst of all of this as a 17, 18 year old. I don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no it, clue. But but you are nevertheless in a place that that is going to take you in some unusual directions in your life. Now I just want to say one thing here. Well, two things. First, if if you're a subscriber to unknowncountry.com, do not miss the 2005 show called Jim Mars and Ed Haslam, H-A-S-L-A-M. <clears throat> it is a brain bending. It, Jim uh, joins uh, as a host for the first time, and he interviews Ed Haslam about his book, Mary Ferry and the Monkey Virus. And it is a classic. Now, <clears throat> that said, going on to just a minute. I'm sorry, I lost my 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 image. Um, going on to the whole issue of what was taking place back there. I want to say that there are two things that are seem to be happening at the same time with the advent of the UFO. The first one we all talk about all the time, which is the appearance of the objects and that that slag. For example, I've got a piece of slag here that's very strange and hard to that I got from Art Bell, and Linda's part of it has been studied uh, by the uh, is being studied by the Army and by Al Putoff, and um, uh, mine is still with me. But in any case, it could be slag from Maury Island. It could be from anywhere. 
But one thing about it that's very clear, it's not normal stuff because it's, well, I, my listeners have already heard about it, so I want to go, go on about it. But in any case, the one thing is a material appearance, but there's something else. And I think that everything you've been talking about, all of the high strangeness, including your appearance in it, your dr being drawn into it, has to do with the fact that this presence is penetrating the human mind and beginning to manipulate us from within. I, th I don't think it's an accident. I don't think any of our lives are accidents, especially not the people who get entangled in this. How do you respond to that? Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, well, once you get entangled, you're entangled. There's no way to disentangle. That's um, right. It, it may reduce in intensity for periods and then pick back up again. Um, I, I don't know how else to to describe this because people, when they hear this story, they jump to all sorts of conclusions. And one of the conclusions that they, they always that they, I always come across is when they they tell me that um, oh, Lavenda must have been you know he was a uh, He's been an operative. He's been a deep state, you know, uh, intelligence officer for we all these times. Yeah, and, we, we, we have to take a break, but it's a great point to take a break yeah, because one right. of the things I want to talk to Peter about is the deep state and what it means to him and why. Well, we'll talk about it in a minute, Free Dreamlanders. We're going to take a brief break right now. We're talking to Peter Lavenda. He is the author of quite a number of books, to say the least. Some of the all-time classics, uh, like Sinister Forces, we are sort of uh, orbiting around God's Man and War, an official secret machine's investigation of the UFO phenomenon by Tom DeLong with Peter Lavenda, uh, with a wonderful forward by Dr. Jacques Vallée, by the way. Now, uh, you have been accused of being part of the deep state, of being a CIA operative. And you, you, after all, did work for a number of small export companies, which are fronts. For, they're often fronts for CIA operatives. And you're sort of in this whole world. Um, you somehow ended up at Colonia Dignidad, of all places. Folks that, who don't know about that, that was the... Uh, it was a Nazi colony that existed in Chile when Chile was still a fascist state. And Peter just sort of walked in and looked around. <laughs> he nearly got himself killed, too. <clears throat> but it occurred to me at the time I, we were talking about that, and you must, by the way, folks, there are a lot of Peter Lavenda inter interviews on this website, and they're all marvelous. Uh but what is the deep state in your mind? I, I, it, does it even exist? Well, the deep state, as, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know, was a term that was created actually in Turkey um, to, to refer to something very specific. Um, and then it's become sort of this casual term that we throw around. For me, the deep state is not a bunch of people in the back room smoking cigars and um, plotting the overthrow of the world like uh, it's portrayed to be. To me, the deep state is is what I write about in Sinister Forces. There's there's a force in in history. Let, just look at American history by itself. There are so many things that go on that we refer to as coincidences or synchronicities. 
but there's such a chain of them, and they all seem to coalesce around major uh, political events. Um, and that, to me, is the deep state. There's something, there's, there's a force, there's an invisible force, or I spent some time in Indonesia um, uh, years back and forth. And I went to university there briefly. I'd spent it one, one semester there at uh, Gajamada University. And there's a tradition in that country of a kind of deep state, um, belief system, but it's, it's called the hidden force. There's something at work in history that we don't see that is not consciously controlled by human beings, but it exists and it makes itself known. It, it, it percolates through. Uh, people and events and places and causes webs of connection um, or, or strums these webs of connections the way a spider would strum his his spider web. Um, there, there's a kind of, um, uh, I guess you could call it the matrix, you know, for want of a better term. There's something underneath conscious reality. And we're kind of victims of it if we're not aware of it, if we don't pay attention. As a writer, and I've had this conversation with other writers, when you get deeply involved in a subject, suddenly you find everything you need, miraculously, stuff that you didn't even know existed quite often. There's like a library genie, they sometimes refer to it as. But when I was writing Sinister Forces, and I'm living in Malaysia at the time, in Kuala Lumpur, not a place that has a lot of books on American history, and particularly not in used bookstores on side streets in the middle of nowhere, right? and I was writing the chapter on uh, the Salem witchcraft trials, which to me is another indication of, of the deep state in action. Well, we can get into that some other time. But so there's the Salem witchcraft trials. And, you know, I'm writing that chapter and I think I have enough information. And I'm taking a walk. I'm wandering down alleyways and byways to areas I've never been before, which helps to clear my mind and reorient myself. And um I see an old secondhand book stall and it's actually a stall. It really isn't even closed behind walls. It's sort of in a, in an area that's kind of open. The books are all dusty and they're all on little racks and probably no one's looked at them in, in a long time. And I walk up there and suddenly there's three or four academic texts on the Salem witchcraft trials, books that I had never heard of before, didn't know existed. And there they are. In one case, one was kind of a monograph that had been privately made and it's sitting there. Okay, so I get those and I bring them back. That's a one-off, except that now I'm doing a different cha a different chapter. I'm working on the, the Charles Manson uh, stuff from the second volume of Sinister Forces. And the same thing happens, a completely different area, completely different uh, bookstore, and all of these academic treatises on the Charles Manson affair, right? They're all just waiting for me there. Okay, that's two. And then the third. Now I'm looking at, I'm doing the UFO chapter. And what do I come across but Ingo Swan's book, right? Um, uh, it's Perception, I think it's called, right? Uh, that, that famous pamphlet. There's Ingo Swan in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in a side street in some other bookstall, sitting there with a bunch of other like romance novels in Malaysian language, right? And there's Ingo Swan staring at me. So that's the, that was the third time. And these things... You, you you begin to activate something. There's no logical explanation for why this happened, except there I am in Kuala Lumpur, finally working and putting together sinister forces after more than 20 years of research. And I had brought most of my material with me to, to Malaysia to do this. 
But, you know, that was years of, of uh, back and forth on this. I didn't have everything I needed. There was new research, new things being done. And suddenly everything that I needed shows up. Um, that to me means there, there is something else at work. And if you want to call it a deep state, that's okay. But I don't believe the it, deep it state clearly, in terms of that, that QAnon talks about it or anything like that. It's it's not a bunch of guys smoking cigars. It Yeah, it's something else. And But it, in this case, clearly... It wants secrets uh, to be released that, uh, you know, it wants them to be seen. So there's nothing sinister about it. On the contrary, it is helping you create a book about the sinister forces in the world. And and so you call it in in, uh, Secret Machines and elsewhere uh, the phenomenon. And it you say... uh, the the phenomenon does not seem to originate in our world. This raises a question, what is our world? How do we determine what is part of it and what isn't? And this is some kind of a penetration, because I have lived the same way. And I bet you if you we talked to 10 researchers in these areas in particular, but in many areas, they all live the same way. Uh, th- what they need falls into their hands if it is for some reason of interest to the phenomenon. And the phenomenon, as I understand it, is always on the side of exposing some kind of dark presence in our world, sinister forces, in other words. It helped you. It helped you. Absolutely. Yeah, And it, what also helped was the fact that I was exposed to so much weirdness <laughs> since I was a, a teenager, right? The weird churches and the weird, et cetera, it's all, it's, it's a history of it, right? I just wind up, you know, I forest gump my way through the world and, you know, these things happen, right? And strange people, you know, become available and strange people talk to strange experiences. It just, it just automatically starts happening, Uh and remember, there was an intention to a certain point in my young, young life where I was trying deliberately to make contact with forces like this, not really knowing what they were. But I was, you know, reading about I was reading about ceremonial magic when I was a, a teenager in the Bronx. Right. I was fascinated with the idea of, of contacting uh, spiritual forces, you know, uh, summoning angels and demons and that sort of thing. So I was, I was like a lot of kids at that age, at, at that time. Uh, as 13, 14, 15 years old, you're reading a lot of material like this and you're, you're conducting seances and you're trying to make this connection. So that might have been the trigger. It might have been at a very young age. I, you know, I flipped a switch somewhere and then all of this stuff started to, to follow suit. Now, let's, let's go on to, uh, try to understand the, there, there, there's a point of intersection between our world and another world. And that's where you identify the phenomenon. That's where you say it is. And this other world, do you have any sense of its, why is it interested in us at all? That's what I don't understand because, you know, I mean, we're a fairly innocuous little blip in the universe, I think, hardly even a speck of dust. And yet all of this is going on here. Something about us that we don't really completely understand has attracted the attention of something 
much, much larger than us. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if that's the the right way to frame the question because there's an implication that um, the physical universe that we're looking at with our telescopes and, and our spacecraft and all the rest of it is the ground for these experiences, and it may not be. Um, this physical universe may be um, a reflection of something that's that's deeper, reflection of something else. If the phenomenon, the way we understand it, to get back to the idea of the phenomenon, the phenomenon, we're calling it that because we don't want to be restricted to the idea that we're only talking about nuts and bolts UFOs, or we're not talking about little green men aliens. We're talking about an overarching way of looking at the world, an overarching way of looking at reality that incorporates all of these things as integral parts of what we do every day. In other words, the the phenomenon is part of us. It's, it's hardwired into us, in a sense. So um, it's not something we put in a separate box. It's not like there's a box marked UFO and we put all the UFO stuff in there and if we get bored, we open that box and we read about UFOs. From our point of view, and I'm, I'm speaking generally from to the stars without naming specific individuals, but generally, our point of view is that this phenomenon is part and parcel of who we are. It, there, there is something very critical about it, which is why we have to study it. Well, it's very imperative for us to to understand what this is, because it's going to reveal to us secrets about ourselves, about reality in general. And about all the other things that we are interested in, space travel, um, longevity is part of the is part of this from our perspective, at least from my perspective. The idea of you know of, of flying to the stars and living forever. This is an ancient, ancient concept which uh, we can find traces of in our earliest religions. So why is that there? What what prompted this? What prompted this idea that we were going to travel to the stars? We're going to live on the stars? You know. What prompted this thing? We've had it since the beginning. The earliest shamans would climb a tree and then allegedly, you know, disappear into the sky and then come back down with wisdom from from the stars. This is before any recorded religion, right? This is before the Abrahamic religions, before Sumer, before Egypt. Our indications are from anthropology that shamans were going on star travel from the very beginning. There was something about that. And it has to do with consciousness. It has to do with the way we perceive reality, um, the the secret of who we are is buried in there somewhere. So from my point of view, the phenomenon and these forces are not necessarily 100% alien to us. They may be a, a missing link in understanding uh, who we are as human beings on this planet. We're going to take another short break for Free Dreamlanders, and then we're going to get a little bit deeper into the question of who we are on this planet because somebody else is involved with us and in order to understand where we're going, we're going to have to understand our, something at least about our relationship with this other presence. So we'll be right back. We're talking to Peter Lavenda. The best way to get into the writings of Peter Lavenda 
is to simply go to wherever you buy books, especially online, because his books are carried at Barnes and Noble. You can uh, find them on the indie website. Uh, you can certainly find them on Amazon, all of them. So get involved because you're looking here at somebody who has penetrated the veil uh, in, in, in a significant way. And he may not know where he is exactly, but what the heck, none of us do. Uh, but he knows more about that than most people. And I want to go now way back. You briefly touched on Sumer. And I think it's important to go back to Sumer and to talk a little bit about the the division between the gods that started to be uh, explored then and eventually over many thousands of years uh, culminated in Gnosticism in the, uh, in the uh, Christian era. But can we start there? Because there's a dark god and a light god, is there not? Or, or is that a good way of looking at things? That's the way the Sumerians eventually saw it. I think their creation epic uh, talks about the creation of the world as we know it and of humanity also as a result of a battle between two forces, two divine forces. Uh, there was uh, Tiamat, which in Hebrew became Tehom, the, the abyss. So you had a, um, a, a goddess who was a kind of a dark, ancient goddess. Like from, from before anything was created, this goddess was there. And the goddess and her consort god, they had a, a, a number of children, of offspring, who were younger gods, right? A younger generation of gods. And according to the kind of quaint story that we got from the Enuma Elish and some of the other uh, creation stories of ancient Sumer, these young gods were making too much noise. And uh, basically the the parents, Tiamat and her, her husband, uh, decided that they were making too much noise and this was going to have to stop. They weren't obeying their parents, so they'd have to kill them, right? Uh, so this war broke out between the younger gods and the older gods. And the younger gods eventually won. But it's the description of the victory that's very interesting because what happens is they take the goddess who's visualized as a kind of a dragon or a serpent, some kind of a, of a, of like a deep sea kind of creature. They split her in half and uh, the bottom half becomes uh, the creation that we know. The upper half becomes maybe the firmament, maybe where the stars are. But the younger gods who are now in control of creation, they don't want to do any of the, the heavy lifting themselves. They want to create um, beings who will work for them and do all of the agricultural work and everything else that has to be done. And so they create two kind of robotic figures. And these figures are the, the prototypes of what will become the human race. The, according to the stories, the, the beings are created from the blood of the slain goddess, the blood of Tiamat, and the breath of the younger gods, Marduk. The leader of the younger gods was Marduk, often identified with Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. So Marduk breathes his, his spirit into this bloody mess that he's created from the, the flesh of the goddess Tiamat. 
So basically what you have in human beings is the result of these two antagonistic forces that existed from since the beginning of time. And now these this artificial creature, this hybrid being, which is the humanity, is now torn between these two previous existences. Part of us, according to the Sumerians, then are, are more like Tiamat, and part of us are more like Marduk. And there's there's the alien versus predator thing here. It's like a plague on both your houses, you know. I mean, which one is better than the other? It's sort of impossible to tell. It's just that there is a battle between the two of them. There's a, a, a force. And this kind of ancient idea will then re- resurrect itself in, in Gnosticism, as you mentioned, where it becomes much more fine-tuned so that, you know, there's there's goodness and there's evil. And creation is perceived as evil. Um, there's the Gnostic story of of uh, the Garden of Eden and the serpent and, the, and and Eve. And Eve is, you know, looking at the, the fruit that she's not supposed to be eating, and the serpent tells her, go ahead, you know, if you eat this apple from the forbidden tree, you shall be as gods. According to the Gnostics, that serpent was God, and the creator of this world was what they called the Demiurgos, the Demiurge, which was a kind of a monstrous creature that took all the credit for himself, that he was the creator of everything, when he actually he wasn't the one who was responsible. So the Gnostics rewrote and flipped the script entirely on Genesis in order to get at what they thought was a deeper truth. The um, uh, Pyramid of Unus contains a, the pyramid text, which is widely mistranslated but in the few correct translations, and I've gone into this deeply enough to where I have learned a significant enough about hieroglyphics and the way they work. I can't, I can't, I can't tell you that I can sit down and read hieroglyphics, sight read hieroglyphics, but I do understand much about them after 20 years of study, uh, that this is a deeply, deeply rich, language of uh, the it is by far the f- richest written language that exists on the earth and the earlier the hieroglyphics the richer they are for the most part and in the pyramid of unas the spine is discovered is dis- is described as a serpent of light surrounded by seven other smaller serpents which are circling it and drawing the energy of life, of, of the life the body is living into the spine, and which is then accelerated to a higher level in the in the being uh, and 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 held there. In other words, it's a there's a process going on, and the Egyptians had the forty two uh, negative uh, the forty two laws of Maat which told you how to live in such a way that this uh, that this uh, material of life that you're creating would end up being lighter than a feather so that you could ascend to the stars. And the whole trajectory of my life with the visitors has turned out to be a, a, about how to ascend and isn't this perhaps the the underlying motive here 
of everyone from the very earliest days through the Gnostics right until now, that there is a journey of ascension at hand, a ladder to heaven. And passing on that ladder is what we are meant to be doing. But then there's something else that doesn't want that and throws off all kinds of sinister forces to hoodwink people into doing things that guarantee that they will fail. And we're seeing it right now in a what was a perfectly rational man, Vladimir Putin, suddenly doing things that are incredibly harmful and dangerous and guaranteeing that when he dies, his soul will sink away. The exact opposite of what anyone would want. And uh, many with him, many with him. Uh, you mentioned a, a desire for immortality a little while ago, and these people all have that because they know that they're not going anywhere after they die. I, I, I'm sort of wandering here yeah. a little bit, Peter, and I'm hoping you'll kind of spark to it because you have such a wonderful mind and such deep knowledge of these things I'm touching on. Well, I've, I've written in, in um, Secret Machines. Um, I've hinted at it in, in, I think, probably in the second volume in Secret Machines Man, but also another work that I've done and I'm still doing, that there's a conflict in, in human nature, which is hardwired into us. Everything that lives on this planet is the result of DNA. It's what uh, some people call the biological imperative or the genetic imperative, but I, I prefer. So we'll call it the genetic imperative. DNA wants to reproduce. It wants us to reproduce. It wants us to have children. And then we're supposed to get out of the way because we can't take the resources the children need because DNA needs those children to reproduce and on and on and on and on. It does not want us to be individually immortal. That would totally screw up DNA's plans for world domination, right? If we were all immortal suddenly, DNA would not be reproducing anymore. It would not be, it would not be as immortal. It would be frozen in time. And so I think that there's this conflict within us. I don't think consciousness is an emergent property of the brain, as it has been said by, by people who study this sort of thing. They think no brain, no consciousness. I don't think that's necessarily true, at least not in the way we frame it. I think consciousness comes from elsewhere. I think our genetic imperative means we're going to reproduce, do everything we have to do to reproduce, and then we're, we have to be satisfied with just dying and getting out of the way. Why is it when we have near-death experiences that are recorded, people record all these wonderful things? They see relatives, they see the light at the end of the tunnel and all the rest of it. Why? There is no genetic or biological necessity for that to happen. There is no evolutionary purpose in us having this great experience of dying. There's something fishy about that in my estimation. Yes. I don't know what it is, but I'm sort of, I don't, I don't understand the purpose of that. Why well, would you It goes that? back a long way, doesn't it? You quote yourself sure. from the pyramid texts. Uh, a stairway to heaven shall be laid down for him, meaning Unus, right. the Pharaoh, that he may ascend to heaven thereon. Yeah. 
uh, that stairway is in us. It is the spine, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but it means that 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 a path to the stars. And is it? It, 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 I don't think it's a path to stars in the physical universe, but it may be. I mean, what if what if Orion is indeed heaven? I mean, you know. I mean, who knows well, what's going on? But speculate a little bit about that, if you will. Sure. I mean, I think, and and we make this point in in the books that something happened on this planet at some point in, in, in dim prehistory. We were hunter-gatherers. We were happy being hunter-gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years. Yes. Homo sapiens just wandered around in paradise, right? Or as close to it as, as it would look today. So they were wandering around. They were hunter-gatherers. They, they probably had a hard life, but that was it. That was their life for hundreds of thousands of years. And then suddenly a switch is thrown. And everybody's building cities and they're building these pyramids and they're building structures like this. And they're talking about going to the stars and living forever you know, all around the world, right. all roughly the same time. So why is that? Ha- why did that happen? What what prompted that to take place for all of us suddenly to say, we're not going to be hunter gatherers anymore. We're going to develop medicines. We're going to try to live longer and longer and longer. And we're going to try to develop technology to go to the stars. In, in Secret Machines, we say we're part of a cargo cult. The whole planet is a cargo cult because all we want to do is live forever and travel to space, right? Now, and just, these two just things go motivate back, everything. Go yeah. back a second because I know some of my listeners will not understand what a cargo cult is. Can you tell us? Sure. Um, a cargo cult it was an actual thing. And I was just talking about this the other day to somebody at To The Stars. The very first time I heard about it, I was a teenager, and I saw a movie called Mondo Cane, which you have to be really old to have seen this film. It's an Italian shock documentary film. A famous song came out of it called More, which lounge lizards were singing for years, more than the greatest love the world has known, et cetera, et cetera. That was the theme song for this film. And the the capstone of it for me was actual film footage of the cargo cult. And the cargo cult was based on the experiences of Stone Age people, pre-literate, pre-historical people living in the jungles near Papua, New Guinea, and that, that chain of islands there in the South Pacific around the time of the beginning of World War II. You have the Japanese cutting uh, jungle apart, looking to build um, airstrips. You have the British doing the same thing. You have a lot of people suddenly, they're descending in these areas and they're, they're getting ready for the war. And these people who had never even seen a wheel are now looking at planes landing with strange people coming out and all these boxes of goodies, medicines, food, uh, weapons, all sorts of things. They don't even understand what they're looking at. But what they do know is that something's coming from the heavens and it's bringing them all this stuff. And then this thing takes off again and another one comes down and brings more stuff. So these people put two and two together. And they said, we're going to build airstrips and we're going to duplicate as much as possible of what we see. So the airstrip and a conning tower, maybe, or not a conning tower, but a a radio tower. We're going to try to duplicate everything that we see. We're going to put lights out on the runway also. And maybe a plane or whatever. They didn't have a word for it, but maybe one of these things from the sky will land here and give us stuff too. 
And that became the beginning of what we call the cargo cult. So the shock of contact of hunter-gatherers with modern technology gave rise to a religion. And it was a religion that was based upon an observation, not of ghosts and spirits and demons, but observation of something tangible and real, because it took something tangible and real to cause this tremendous bifurcation in their consciousness, this tremendous upset of their of their society, of their culture. So our position, or, or one proposal we put forward, is that the planet itself, human civilization now, is in that same position. At some point, thousands of years ago, something came down and landed and left again. And that 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 jump-started our religions. It jump-started our idea of civilization, uh, animal husbandry, you know, um, writing, uh, mathematics. Everything came out of this, this contact. It didn't happen immediately. It was a gradual thing, the evolution of writing and everything else as we know. But the impetus for this, the, the ignition key was turned by this one event, or maybe it was a series of events, but something happened to sort of slap us out of uh, the, the, the pleasant sort of consciousness we had at the time into this new understanding that there was a lot more to the universe than the hunter-gathering uh, stuff that we did. Even the Sumerians, since we brought it up, they had a tradition, a, a story about a being who brought them all this information, taught them animal husbandry, taught them planting, taught them writing and mathematics. And right. it was an alien being that landed and then came out of the sea, out of a, a vessel of some kind in the ocean, wearing a helmet and wearing all this other stuff, who would not eat or drink anything uh, that the people offered them, which is kind of telling today. In those days, maybe it looked weird, but today we could understand. They didn't want to get microbes. They didn't want to get, you know, they didn't know what these people were, were, were carrying as far as things that could hurt them. So they just wore you know, basically hazmat suits, but gave them information and then left again and then departed forever. Now, did they bring with them this fundamental conflict that we talked about earlier? In other words, it, you know, when you look at, at Egyptian ritual, which I've been very interested in, studying and there have been attempts to recreate egyptian ritual based on uh the the extensive illustrations that we have of these activities and if you if you get into the way egyptian ritual and especially egyptian magic works you're looking in my opinion at an actual cargo cult in other words they saw this working Exactly. And they built a cargo cult. They built, you know, the, the people in the Trobriand Islands built uh, uh, airplanes out of bamboo and leaves and refrigerators and moved toward them the same way they saw the airmen moving, making noises that sounded to them like the airmen's speech, and then opened them hoping that beer would come out. And of course it didn't. And I think that, I think that, Ancient religions are a cargo cult that is reflects the work of of sciences that we know nothing about because they've never belonged to us. So right. that that's that's the point we were making. These yeah. religions were cargo cults. The idea of putting the pharaoh, mummifying him, 
putting him in the in the pyramid and expecting him to go to space and be immortal, right? Right. To me, that's that's a cargo cult, right? Exactly. That's, that's right exactly. Yeah. So, but but our science also, it's not just the religion. Our science is also motivated by the same, the same feelings, the same emotions. Well, it's a, we. It, it, our whole response to the UFO, uh, which you and I know a fair amount about, actually, is a cargo cult, as I've pointed out to various people in my life. I'll give you an example. The Aurora space plane, which the Air Force now claims never existed, but which, of course, did. Um, I, I saw the budget allocations for it at one point in my life. So, of course, it existed. But I'll tell you that it, it was based on a a a a, a procurement a, a defense procurement request that basically listed all of the observed characteristics of ufo movement and said we want to duplicate this that is to say since we don't have an understanding or we have an, an understanding of something of an understanding of the propulsion system but not an ability to recreate it for various reasons um, the, uh, the, uh, the, they ended up building something that could use, uh, the earth's magnetic field to a degree that basically had very powerful jets could, could turn on a dime and therein was a problem because they built also, uh, uh, anti-G suits, which would, which would supposedly equalize the g-force on the pilot as these extremely sharp turns were made then the next thing i know a flight surgeon who is an acquaintance of mine finds himself treating uh, test pilot patients who have shattered hips because this whole idea is completely absurd you can't take a body like ours and 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 subject it to forces like that and Anyone who knows anything about the bodies that were brought that we do have that they're extremely light, they're not heavy like us and full of fluid. They're different. They can do. They can. They can stand much more intense uh, 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 motions and so forth than we can. But this whole thing is a cargo cult. Right. We're building. We're spending billions of dollars behind the scenes on a cargo cult right now. I, and I, I 100% agree with you. But this is to, to us. This is what this is what's been going on. The science and religion only separated relatively recently in human history. For a long time, they were part of the same process, right? So uh, medicine was part of, of of religion, right? There were religious aspects to everything. You couldn't color outside the lines where that's concerned. Everything was, you know, we we're calling it superstition from this point of view. But when you lived back in those days, religion and medicine, religion and uh, science, it was all part of the same thing. If you read Plato, you know, you get this idea that there's mystical forces in the universe, not just the ones that we that we understand. So there was this idea that, you know, science started going on its own path. But the initial impetus for scientific research, the initial forces that started it, was was the same as for religion. It was a cargo cult. It was this experience of this possibility, the experience of of something so unusual that we tried to duplicate it. And, and I think so it's powerful and so much wanted by us. Absolutely, yeah. 
So I think we're still doing that. I think we're still in the process of working through that initial trauma that we had thousands of years ago. And we're trying to balance this out. We're trying to duplicate everything we saw. Immortality, space travel, uh, all the, the miraculous things that evidently we saw at some point in our, our prehistory is now influence, still influencing human drives in, in sciences as well as in religion. Absolutely. And, you know, we're right in the middle of it now. Uh, we're going to uh, move into the end of the free part of the show. And, you know, you can get deeply into Peter Lavenda, and you should, because we're talking to someone who is literally the real deal here, uh, who knows in an enormous amount. And in the third half hour, we're going to be talking about the insiders and John Podesta and the infamous release of the Podesta emails and what, ha what happened when it turned out that Tom DeLong, who was being sneered at because he was, they, people were saying, oh, he doesn't have any real secret sources or anything. And then suddenly there were all of his emails between him and John Podesta. And uh, what did John Podesta know? And are there deeper sources and how deep does this go in the human in the human uh psyche and in and in the in and within the intelligence community and where does the manipulation of the minds of insiders start because they are very definitely being manipulated by the phenomenon much more than those of us on the outside, because we don't matter as much to it. So we'll be talking about all of that in the third half hour of Dreamland. And again, I would urge you to do a number of things. Get into Peter. One of the most wonderful ways to do it is we've had loads of fabulous conversations on Dreamland. Uh, that's one way. Uh, don't miss Jim Mars and Ed Haslam. Uh, and get Secret Machines, because this is deep stuff and it's beautifully written it's highly intelligent and it will take you beyond where you are now into a relationship with the phenomenon that matters to you the, the books are that powerful so don't don't forget that and and you know don't don't listen to the surface level bs that goes on about peter and tom and and Jim Semivan and all of the people who are involved in this project, there's more here. This is this. I think the phenomenon is doing everything it can to blunt the force of the effort they're making, and that's why Peter's here. And I hope that I will see. I've seen Jim Semivan, and I'm hoping to see Tom at, also at some point in in time. So thank you very much for being with us, those of you on the free side. We'll keep right on keeping on for subscribers. Well, Peter, I brought up John Podesta, and there's no use in pussyfooting around. Can you tell exactly. us this marvelous story just from the beginning of where John Podesta came in and Tom DeLong came in and how this all started and how it exploded and what it was like in your life? Yeah, this tells you, okay, the, you were talking about this at the very beginning that, you know, these weird things just happened to me, right? And I just forced gump my way through, you know, life or, or zelig my way through life. And 
So I get a phone call, you know, out of the clear blue sky, a, a phone call or, or a, um, an email. No, I forgot. It was an email. I think it was an email. It was, yeah. From somebody c- claiming to be Tom DeLonge, right? From Blink-182. I mean, I knew the band Blink-182. Believe it or not, at my advanced age, I was aware of Blink-182. <laughs> um, for me. a number of reasons. But, well, I knew it because, for some reason, it stuck in my brain because, you know, as a New Yorker, I grew up uh, taking the subways, and there was always a graffiti artist called Taki-183. I remember Taki and, very, very much. Yeah. And so Taki-183 and then Blink-182, it made a connection in my brain at some point in the last 20, 30 years. I don't know. So it stood in there. So I was aware of the band. So this guy, you know, contacts me and wants to talk to me. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, right. Because as you know, and as happens to you, I'm sure, you get a lot of strange contacts from people who are not what they seem to be uh, or who are, you know, have ulterior motives. So I was very, you know, cautious about it. And I did a little background first on on Tom and everything else. And I realized that Tom was definitely interested in UFOs and that sort of thing. So I gave him my number and we did, we started this conversation. That was in 2014, I think November, if I'm not mistaken, of the year 2014. So here's a rock star, you know, a famous rock star out of the clear blue sky wants to contact me and work on a project about UFOs. I didn't set that up. You know what I mean? It wasn't part of my deep state intelligence network thing happening there. It was just, you know, me getting this contact. So he impressed me because of his total commitment to the cause. It's, it's, he, he came at me with, we're going to do everything we possibly can do to get to the bottom of this thing. We're going to, he said he's, you know, he has considerable resources. He had a lot of contacts in government and places, uh, in, in industry and everywhere else. I'm not quite sure all the reasons why, but I know that he went to, to college with some people who also were connected and on and on. So all of this, you know, boiled up and he says, oh, we're going to use all resources that we have. We're going to go everywhere and do whatever we have to do and talk to whoever we can. And we're going to get to the bottom of this whole UFO thing. Um, but we're not going to do it in such a way that we're going to go and start screaming at people and claiming cover-ups and stuff. We're going to go and we're going to nicely ask them what the hell is going on. Um, and we're going to do what we can to find out. So I said, well, okay, in that case, count me in. You know, that's that's a worthwhile endeavor. Um, and before you know it, within six months, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., in a room sitting right across from John Podesta. In 2015, and I think it was June of 2015. So I'm sitting right there. You know, there's John Podesta, and, uh, and just and before John was week, uh, White House Chief of Staff uh, under Obama. Yes, under under Obama and yeah. under Clinton. He and, was uh, also worked in the Clinton administration, right? Um, and yeah, he worked for Obama as well. And now he was running Hillary Clinton's campaign. He was going to be the campaign chair for Hillary Clinton's uh, run at the presidency. So. It's a famous name. And uh, he also was kind of well known on his for his views on UFOs. You know, he kind of took it very seriously and he wanted to get more stuff released and he wanted, you know, some greater uh, transparency and all of that. So so now we're sitting in the room with him and I'm thinking, well, Tom is not making this stuff up. He actually knows how to get John Podesta to show up for this. And he's being taped. We have video cameras and everything going on. And we're talking to him about this phenomenon, and he's being very open with us, saying, "Guys, there's no, um, there's no one place to go to in government to get UFO information. You have to know who to talk to, who to ask. 
You have to know the right people, the right questions, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You have to have clearances also that even the president of the United States cannot simply pick up the phone and say, give me everything you have on UFOs. There is no one person who has that. There is no one archive that has that. It's stovepiped into so many different parts of the government and industry, for that matter, that to get everything on the UFOs is not possible. Plus, he said, we classify everything to death in government. He said, we overclassify extraordinarily too much. He said, it got to the point where if you wanted anybody to read one of your memos, you had to mark it classified because people will automatically read a classified memo. But an unclassified memo goes to the bottom of the pile. So this is this was the situation, he said. And plus, to declassify a document, he went to all the, the rigmarole that you have to go through to declassify anything. It was an education, for sure. Um, but this was secret. Still, nobody knew that we were talking to Podesta, right? Nobody knew this was going on. Tom kept talking about his advisors. And people said, yeah, right, you're a rock star. What do you know? And the UFO community itself was, you know, completely dismissive of this. Uh, who's Tom DeLong? He's a rock star. He's trying to buy his way into the UFO community or all these, you know, stories started spreading. And then when they realized I was involved, they said, why is he doing this? He's ruining his reputation. Why would he take a hit like this? He must be in it for the money, you know, as if there was a lot of money involved. I was making money as a writer, making standard royalty in this project. I just wanted to be part of the project. So all these rumors started. And especially there were no advisors. Tom is making this up. I knew better because I was privy to a lot of the communications with the advisors. I knew who these, some of these people were. I didn't know all of them, but I knew who some of them were, and they were brass. You know, these are people with a lot of uh, stars on their shoulders and, you know, all of that. So I knew this was true. I knew he was talking to NASA. He was talking to uh, Skunk Works, uh, the Lockheed Martin uh, uh, research facility. He was talking to all these people. And uh, then WikiLeaks, because Podesta is in charge of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, WikiLeaks went after Podesta to see what they could find from uh, Podesta's email traffic. And, of course, they leaked it just, you know, just before the the election. Uh, and what came out, of course, was the fact that there's Tom DeLong's emails to John Podesta and car, you know, discussions of some of the other advisors and uh, CCs to the advisors and stuff. The whole thing exploded. And for me, uh, for Tom, for all the rest of us who were, you know, really building up ahead of steam to that point, to October of 2016, suddenly it all fell apart. Everybody just dropped everything. Uh, nobody was talking on the phone. Nobody was exchanging emails. We went dark for a couple of months. Um, Tom went dark. He spoke to no one. I was getting calls from Everybody from Jimmy Church, you know, and from coast to coast and everything else. Can we talk to Tom? What's going on? Nothing, you know, but suddenly everybody realized in that moment that Tom was telling the truth. Tom was actually talking to Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, the guy who worked for, for Obama and for the Clinton White House. Here was this guy with this long track record in D.C., a very respected, very reputable guy. And he's in this con this conversation with Tom and these other these generals and people like that. So, right. I you think know, it was it, a very seminal moment, Peter, because yeah. from there to the release of information by the Navy Department is an mm -hmm. unbroken line of 
realizations at many different levels that there was something real going on here, that it wasn't all nonsense. Right. And so that, that was a very important, very important moment. It was. And, it, you know, that was 2016. A year later, in 2017, the New York Times breaks the story about the UFO research, you know, operation at the Pentagon. Uh, Lou Elizondo comes out and joins the team of To the Stars, as well as Jim Semivan, a high-ranking member of CIA for many years, a career intelligence officer. Um, all of this starts coming out, right, all at the same time. And it's building up this tremendous head of steam. And the pushback from a lot of people in the UFO community was substantial, right? You're manipulating us. You're, you know, Tom is a tool of the deep state again, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that went on for a good year or, or more, at least, where To the Stars was considered the enemy of the UFO research community, right? You guys are the enemy. You're Johnny come lately. And you're trying to tell us that you trust people like Chris Mellon, right? Uh, from the Department of Defense, for another career. Um, uh, intelligence and, and, uh, defense department, uh, personality and how Putoff is involved. Well, that raised all kinds of bells for people and, uh, on and on, right? So all of these, these people were now considered pariahs. And so I asked people, I said, where did you expect disclosure was going to come from? You're asking the government to disclose. And now these government guys are coming out and saying, we're disclosing. And like Chris Mellon said, when are you guys going to take yes for an answer? Right. Well, it's very true. And, you know, I've, I've known a, a lot. I know Chris Mellon a little bit. Uh, Lou fascinates me because he won't talk to me at all. And uh, I've known Hal since forever. I mean, we've known each other for most, most certainly most of my adult life. And um, uh, so, uh, this exists, but also there's another thing. These people that we're talking about now are just the surface. They're the actual visible surface of something right. that, that that's much more, much more complex. And, and I will say this about it. What I don't know all that much about it, but I do know this. It always goes back to origins that are basically not human. And, in other words, we're not isolated here. There are people at various places in the U.S. government, not Hal Pudoff or Chris Mellon or any of the ones we've been discuss discussing, who do have direct interface. And, and that has been a very difficult, fraught situation for many years. And it gets me back to this whole business of that we were discussing earlier of the dark God and the light God and the conflict that so f seems to be so fundamental to all of this, not a human conflict, but a conflict outside of our world that is penetrating us in various ways. We call it the phenomenon, but really shouldn't it be called something else because it's not, it's not unitary. There's a whole lot of different, uh, points of conflict in it. So, and, and, and our response reflects that in, in that, you know, the air force has had a horrible time with this phenomenon, whereas the Navy hasn't, the Navy hasn't had a bad time with it at all, but why, you know, we just don't understand these things. If you could no. just kind of riff, this is not a question. 
But sure. if you could just sort of riff, because I know you have a lot of familiarity in the area that I'm talking about. Well, the the question of the Air Force comes up every once in a while in our conversations and um, at To the Stars, but also with other with other individuals who are interested. You know, the Air Force is kind of a holdout with, with all of these, with all the government agencies and groups. The Air Force is, is a weird uh, exception to the rule. For some reason, the Air Force thought it was okay to screw with people. You know, to screw with their minds, to um, to infiltrate the UFO community, to do all kinds of you know things, to to upset people, to perpetrate hoaxes and all the rest of it. You know, the other agencies, you know, they don't have a a brief for doing this. There's no way they can go and actively create disinformation campaigns, right, against their own people. They can do it abroad, uh, and they do, but to actively get into this, let's let's really let's create this entire thing. Let's make everybody doubt UFO ex- UFOs exist because we're going to give them so much disinformation about it. They're not going to know what to believe. They're just going to give up. Um, so um, I will say just just uh, yeah. briefly, my first code name with the FBI was Mr. Malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was the theme uh, of the, mm-hmm. it, it, within Air Force intelligence that I was an absolute nut and a liar and not a word of it was true. And mm. of course, that was the exact opposite of the truth. Right. But go ahead, please. Well, yeah. So that's, that's our misinformation in, in, in operation. And for some reason, the Air Force got away with that, right? And I was just talking about this just the other day, that what is, there's some strange stuff going on in Colorado Springs. There's some strange stuff going on at the Air Force Academy because there's like a whole religious thing happening out there, you know, and officers expecting everybody to to attend services on Sunday. And there's like a heavy religious aspect to it. And they will have presentations on different religions, which basically denigrate all those religions in favor of Christianity. And this is happening like at the Air Force Academy, like what's up with that? Right. And then we realize that in different parts of the government, in the Pentagon, but also in Congress, there's been this pushback against the UFO thing for years because there was this assumption that the UFOs were demonic and that you don't study UFOs because all you're doing is you're inviting evil spirits into the world. I mean, these are people who are military professionals or government, you know, people elected people from the U.S. government who are perpetrating these things. And they're doing it evidently deliberately. They shut down the remote viewing thing for a while because they thought it was uh, it was demonic. It was witchcraft or something. They opposed a lot of the UFO research for the same reason. There's this idea that the UFO represents a, re- a threat religiously and that it's not just a, a threat of another religion because we have a lot of UFO religions in this country. It's a the threat of that this is demonic forces. These are the, the principalities of the air, like in the Bible. These are things that are coming down to, to screw with you. And if you study UFOs to any extent, what you're doing is you're you're just opening us up to all kinds of demonic interference. So the Air Force has been, in my way of thinking, and I could be wrong, and I'm willing to be to be shown that I'm wrong, but in my way of thinking, the Air Force is kind of in the vanguard of this thing, because as you yeah. say, the Air Force was really in the midst of it, right, and dealing with it in a different way than the Navy was. Well, also they've had a shooting war, and and they've they've lost a lot of people and they have they have a uh 
their responsibility is to protect the nation from threats from the from above and you have this huge community of abductees here who were clearly not protected right. from threats from the above so hmm. you know they're going to their their whole reason for being is 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 called into question by their inability to do anything about the abductions let alone understand them and what's worse though is that they have um as you say built this incredible structure tissue of lies which is all run through the through air force intelligence because they don't have a direct prohibition from doing so like the C central intelligence agency does and the FBI does, you can't propagandize the American people. But I think if it ever went to court, it would be found that the Air Force had been acting illegally from the beginning. Because I don't think that the US government at any level has the right to propagandize the American people to lie at any level. And I think that would be uh, that would be affirmed by any Supreme Court, whether liberal, conservative, or moderate. And I think the Air Force probably knows that, which is another reason they keep this all hidden. It's a horrible can of worms, so horrible that I think it could lead to the end of that institution as we now understand it, if it was if it was revealed. And that's why they keep it they keep themselves to themselves on it, and they're. Probably there are probably elements in the Air Force that are quite desperate about this right now. Well, look at it from this point of view. Um, we've only been in the sky for a little over a hundred years, and right. that's just a drop in the bucket for human history. We never the got first up. Thirty there. years or so don't really count, right? So somehow we invaded what I like to call the government of the sky. Right? We're suddenly for the first time we're in their territory. They had unfettered access to the sky, they meaning whatever they are. For all the millions of years of, of life on Earth, all the hundreds of thousands of years of Homo sapiens, they've had unfettered, I mean, that, that was their territory. And we mythologized about it. And we talked about, you know, beings from the sky and God was in the sky and all the rest of this. And then suddenly, for the first time, we're up there with them. And we've invaded the sky, in a sense, we've invaded their territory, and but we're invading a territory that we don't know anything about. You know, we're suddenly we're at we're in a place where we don't know what the rules are anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm this is a broad brush, right? This is not really to be taken quite as literally as as it sounds. But my point is is that this is a new reality for us. We as human beings now we routinely get in a plane and fly, which something that my my grandparents didn't do. They came from, you know, Europe on a boat, you know, they didn't, they didn't fly anywhere. And then suddenly, you know, we're flying. I, I logged in hundreds of thousands of miles of, of, of miles of flying everywhere. So it's, it's, it's a different world now. It's a different consciousness. It's a different, we have to understand things differently and we are not really prepared for it. So the air force is, is rather all the air forces in the world are rather unique. This is a type of warcraft, a type of, of battle um, uh, field that's totally unique and it's different. And it's you can't just think in terms of two coordinates anymore. You've got to think in multiple coordinates. But the thing that struck me the most about the Navy and the, the very famous Navy videos that we've seen and all the all those things that we've seen, 
points to another aspect of the phenomenon, the consciousness aspect. And that is that the, the tic tacs that were buzzing our, uh, our, our pilots and flying in front of them and doing all this, this crazy stuff, they would go away and then wait and meet the aircraft where it was supposed to be, our aircraft, where they were supposed to go at coordinates that were not determined until the computer on board ship gave them the coordinates. But when that happened, they were told, by the way, those UFOs, those UAPs, they're waiting for you at that site. <laughs> the UAPs knew in advance what the computer was going to tell them, a computer-generated, uh, I think they call it a CAP, right? It's a place in the sky where you're supposed to meet up. So it's, it's, it's very specific coordinates. Meet up at this particular place. And they were waiting for them. That, more than anything else, all the rest of the details, all the rest of the, the testimony of the pilots and, and the people on board ship and everything else paled to me in light of this one particular fact that they knew in advance what a computer-generated coordinate was going to be, and they were waiting for the planes to show up. The idea of cause and effect, the idea of the planning, the idea that they knew something that no human knew, only the computers would generate it, and they were there, that asks so many questions of us that we can't answer about time and space, about consciousness, about uh, our, our, our computers, our, our military hardware, our vulnerability in that case. It just, it just opens up a can of worms that's immense to me. Not just the Tic Tacs flying around with the different propulsion systems, but knowing in advance where we're going to be. Yeah, if they are flying around. I mean, what if they're penetrations from an, another reality or if they are penetrations from some some later point in time? In other words, time machines. They could be anything. We simply it's such a the the fun thing about the Tic Tacs is when you look at those things you realize you really are looking at an absolutely extraordinary living mystery. And another thing about the Tic Tacs is that they could be living things. You know, you talk about the, the 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 fact that we've entered the sky without knowing what actually lives there. And it reminds me of Kenneth Arnold's daughter saying after his death that he had come to think toward the end of his life that what he had seen might be have been living things <laughs> and things that we would never have seen if we hadn't had airplanes. And... So possibly it's not the the uh, so much the explosions of atomic weapons that attracted their interest to us as our going up into the sky that caused us to notice them. I and, think so. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Great idea, uh, Peter. So where are you now? Uh, we're coming towards moving toward the end of our time together today. And I'm f always fascinated with your work. Uh, and I'm wondering where you're going with it at this point in time, if you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, in, in, well, in the first case, there's a lot of people who want to know when the third book in the Secret Machines trilogy is coming out. And unfortunately, I can't give them an answer. Um, COVID threw a monkey wrench into our operation. Um, it it, uh, it upended a lot of things because we had projects on board 
some government stuff and some industry stuff and everything just stopped. Um, so the company itself got reorganized a little bit. And uh, so the projects that we've been involved with got put on hold, but war has been written. Um, the third volume has been written. I spent a lot of time on it. In fact, that was really the first of the three books I had started working on originally. And um, there's a lot in there about um, Russia and China, for instance, but about uh, just a, a lot of material about conflict and all of this, which has been a kind of an obsession trying to understand what what our role should be as humans in general in dealing with the phenomenon from the point of view of conflict and conflict resolution. What does our relationship to the the UFO or the UAP have um, when it comes to fears of an invasion, for instance? Who do we talk to? Who, how do we understand how to react to this? And I've been, I'm still working on that. I mean, I've, I've written the book, but I'm still working on these ideas because it seems to me that the people on this planet have either been colonized or they colonize. They either invade other countries or they are invaded, right? And and some are enslaved and some are are occupied for hundreds of years. We all have, therefore, an insight into what might happen should there be what the government seems to be afraid of from time to time, which is the possibility of an invasion. What if there was an actual invasion? What if something was coming in? Um Start talking to people. Let's start talking to all of us. Let's talk to people in every country, you know, um, talk to every kind of person. Try to find out what the experience has been for them. We're not, I'm not saying that we're going to be invaded by aliens. Okay. Let me just put that clear. What I'm trying to say is that the contact between one group of people and a completely alien group of people, that moment is interesting. It's fascinating and it could teach us something. Uh, Columbus showing up in, uh, you know, in Santo Domingo, um, or, you know, the, the, the Spaniards showing up in, in the, in, in the Aztec kingdoms and on and on and on. All of these colonial powers, you know, had superior technology and they wound up going to a, a, a country that did not have superior technology. What was the result of that? And it doesn't have to be in terms of an, of a military invasion. It just has to be the contact between these groups. So that kind of thing has been uh, in the back of my mind. I'm doing reading, you know, anthropology, sociology, trying to understand where we can go from that. I've been working in other books as well. Um, I don't even know where to begin on that, but it's been exhausting. I can just tell you that for sure. I haven't done a lot of interviews or anything because it's just been, there's just been just too much going on. Uh, I, I thank you for agreeing to this after so long. I know you, you're, you were buried, almost buried alive in all of this for a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, I, well, you know, I think that we may have already been invaded, but not in the physical world because that's not where it matters. It matters mm -hmm. in the world of the soul. And, uh, believe me, you will find them there already in, in, uh, and perhaps it isn't that they have invaded the world of the soul but that we have reached a level of consciousness where we can see more of what that world actually is. And uh, again, it gets back to the central issue, which is the issue that the Air Force in its way is trying to grapple with, that many, many of the close encounter witnesses are trying to grapple with. And that is the uh, ethical and moral aspect of this 
and the soul and its journey onward and how that relates to this phenomenon in the light and in the dark. Peter, I would like to thank you so very much for being with us today and for My returning pleasure. to Dreamland after these seven years. Seven years? It's, I wow. think so, yeah. I think it was 2015 you were last on. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, and yet we're both fine still. Here we are. Here we are. Doing the same thing, talking about the same stuff. Secret machines uh, to the stars. And don't don't discount, Peter, and please don't listen to the to the conspiracy theorists. They are really very lost. And Peter isn't. He's not lost. And neither are you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.